Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement Podcast. I am your host, Cheats. I am so, so excited to be with you this evening. We have a monster podcast, a major podcast. Right now, as it stands, unfortunately, I'm flying a little bit solo because Gigi Broadway got tied up with uh, some emergency, emergency work situations. However, I will not let you down. We are not coming back to the Cheats Movement podcast to let you down. So what we are going to do is we are going to move forward with our major, major post-election podcast. This is the first time the Cheats Movement podcast is being live streamed on Twitter. It's being live streamed on Facebook. It's being live streamed on YouTube. So and it will be available everywhere that podcasts are available. So I'm extremely excited about what we're doing before I move any further and before I bring in our expert expert panel to talk about the election, Cam says, what up? Everybody say what up to Cam before we bring everybody in to discuss the Tuesday election, the clean sweep that was statewide for Republicans and the house turning from democratic to Republican. I have to give a quick shout out a quick, put everyone on notice that the Cheats Movement Podcast Network, it's called The Family, y'all. The Family is coming 2022, probably late 2021, but definitely January 2022. The Family is coming. It's a whole network of podcasts. If you're interested in podcasting, if you have any questions about podcasting, if you want your podcast to be in a family that cares about content, cares about what you're doing, cares about, obviously, this community and beyond, Please, please, please go to the Cheats Movement Podcast Network.com. I know it's long, but sign up, send us a note. We're very, very excited about what's going to happen in the future with the network. So don't slack on it. Cheats Movement Podcast Network.com. You'll see a landing page now. Please check that out because we have a lot of things coming for 2022, a lot of content being created, a lot of important discussions to have. And we are going to have an extremely important discussion this evening. Again, as I said, it's all about the election. I have tons of thoughts. I have read everything I could possibly read since last Tuesday night. And there's been several, several reviews, several ideas, several suggestions. And I really, really believe that a lot of them are important. Some of them may be a little further far further out there than some, but I think a lot of them are important. And I have two very, very special guests coming on the program that I definitely want to welcome. And I'm going to bring him in right now. So without further ado, Cherie Shannon to Keen Cooper, two amazing, amazing strategists, two amazing activists, two people really, really close to the community and glass grassroots and I'm so excited to have them on the Cheats Movement podcast. Bring your screens up, unmute yourselves. Let's get it going. Let's get this thing going. Because I'm very, very excited to have this discussion. And I think it's an important discussion to have. So, Cherie, Takeem, welcome. Welcome to the Cheats Movement podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having us. Man, first of all, both of you, I feel like I know you extremely well. Takeem and I have visited but I feel like I've known you for years because of our Twitter exchanges. <laughs> Twitter has brought us together. And 
I, Sharid, I've been, Sharid, I've been a huge, huge fan of just the way you go about social media, the way you go about using 180 characters, a very few amount of words to bring on some very poignant points. And obviously, I'm a fan of your show, Women in Politics, WRR, and all the things that you do. And this is actually, we've been trying to get together, but this is our first time that we're actually in a place where we can see each other. And it's an honor. Thank you for being on the show. I'm excited to be here. And it's funny that like you're hyping up my Twitter because that's really just my playground where I try to workshop a lot of messaging. So I'm happy that people like it. I mean, between my like outbursts on Saturdays for college football and then like politics the rest of the week, um, it's really just me kind of just throwing out random thoughts into the ether. So but I, it's yeah. the best. Well, I mean, you don't you it's don't get a lot to celebrate on Saturday. So oh. you must celebrate before okay, the game. We had a good start. Oh. Okay. <laughs> We had a good start, and we are one of the top defenses. But we're not gonna talk about that, Taki. I don't, I don't not, care about your team. Not okay? yet. So. Not yet. <laughs> Tikeen, I mean, I mean, we'd be the top ten team this weekend. That's the only thing I'm gonna say. Who, who is the we? I know Sharif's Penn State. Tikeen, who are you? UNC. No. Oh, oof. Oof. The game. Up and Watch down. It. Watch Up it. and down. Watch it. Watch it. <laughs> Up and down. I'm still look. We're still look. Uh, yeah, we we got we got to stay focused. We got to stay focused. Takeen, I know your work. I've known your work for uh for a number of years now, um in regards to activism, grassroots, and really, um just being at the forefront of a lot. Look, just to be clear, especially if you're talking about democratic politics, a lot of good news. Um, you've had <laughs> Takeen, you've had a pretty good run in many ways. Um in regards to your involvement with the grassroots and your your involvement in politics. And now all of us, all of us have been been through what what seems to be, obviously, I mean, this thing, it's Virginia, it never stops. But we went through a presidential election where the stakes couldn't be higher. We go through a Democratic primary, especially if you're looking at the Democratic side of this, where, let's just be frank, there... there were some glo- there were they took the gloves off in regards to towards that as that primary went on, there were a lot of things in the Democratic program. We can get into them, but it I think and I could be wrong, but I think it led to some. It just led to a harder reunification a- against grassroots community members. I know the elected officials, a lot of folks that were running, seemed to say and do the right things, but there they had a bunch of teams that had to coalesce around um, the candidate that actually won the primary who got the nomination, Terry McAuliffe, and went into Tuesday. Um, we hit Tuesday, and the Republicans have now won the governor's mansion. The Republicans have now won the lieutenant governor's mansion and the attorney general's office, and they took back the House in regards to uh, the election. And so I will there's no two better people to talk to. And I have manners. I was raised in the South. So we're going to go women first, women first. Cherie, let me start with you and just ask, were you surprised by the end result on Tuesday? And in the short amount of time that you've had to, to process what happened on Tuesday, what are your key takeaways of how did we, how did, it end up here? How did it end up with a Republican sweep and the House? And were you surprised about it? 
I was surprised. I was surprised that Northern Virginia did not come and save the Commonwealth like they normally do. So on Tuesday night, I'm watching MSNBC and Steve Karnacki over there naming every locality in Virginia, basically. Um, and it was a bit confusing because he's like, we have mail-in ballots. We have early votes coming in. This is the day of. And so these numbers are being tabulated. We start to see those numbers for Fairfax County and Loudoun County, and they were not as massive as I thought they would be. But really what was most surprising for me wasn't so much that Terry McAuliffe lost. It was that we lost the House um, and that it was very obvious that the the, the names at the top of the ballot hurt down ballot races. And there were some very close races that I thought were going to actually go blue. So Deborah Gardner, for example, in Chesterfield in um, House District 27, within the last two cycles, that was decided by less than 200 votes, 319 in total for 2017 and 2019. And so I'm thinking she has a really good chance to actually flip the seat blue. It doesn't happen. She only gets 44% of the total votes. We also lose some major, major um, heavy hitters such as like LaCherise Baird, um, Josh Cole as well. And so really for me, um, I was writing those press release statements. You have to write all the scenarios for one of my clients who's a C4 organization. So you have the, we went across the board, what if Terry loses, but then Hollow wins, and then we win the house, and then you have lose, lose, lose. And that was the one statement I really had not prepared for. I did not have a lose, lose, lose scenario across the board. And so I'm trying to figure out exactly what am I supposed to say about this? Because the writing was on the wall, and deep down, even though I knew the McAuliffe campaign did not actually run a strong campaign somewhere I still kept thinking that those numbers were going to come out of Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads and, and Richmond and it just did not happen so really all of the signs that we have seen throughout this entire election cycle from the Democratic primary all the way through the general election they came to fruition and now Democrats have to sit with themselves and really take a look in the mirror and say like, okay, we effed up. Now, what do we do moving forward? And I think to your point, Cheese, when you talked about this reunification, there never was a reunification after the primary. That never happened. There was no conversation with black women organizers, with progressives, who, folks who were stomping for both of the Jennifers to say like, okay, let's come to the table, let's talk about this, let's get our feelings out of the way, and let's figure out how we're going to organize. That never took place. And now we are left with this outcome. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to ask Akeen to jump in and the same question. Were you surprised? And now that you have a week, you know, just a little bit under a week to process, why do you think we got here? Sure. So uh, once again, thank you for, for having myself and Cherie uh, to have this conversation this evening. Honestly, I wasn't surprised. I was still disappointed. Um, but the, the red flag really went up that night about 730 when we lost Prince Edward County. Um, and that's your hometown. So, right? uh, yes. Yeah. And Prince Edward County I always say is a bellwether and Virginia politics. Um, it's literally the heart of Virginia and uh, it flipped blue. I mean, if it went red this time and, you know, I think Prince Edward County has decided um, every 
governor since 2001, which was Mark Warner. He lost Prince Edward County, but won it, won the mansion. Um, you know, I think there are a couple of things that really, really happen. And um, I'm definitely not here to make any excuses tonight. The issues with our party, um, specifically with outreach, didn't start with uh, in 2021. I think as as definitely has changed over the years, and hopefully it ends at 2021. I hope that we uh, that we learn a great deal from those laws, and that we are we are strengthened and we become a better party collectively because of it. But one of the big things is. Um, I think in some ways we wrote off rural Virginia um, and our outreach in rural Virginia has been uh, non-existent over the past 15, 20 years. And I actually, I tweeted the other day, I said, I don't know who had the meeting several years ago that said the signs don't vote, but um, I'm sorry I missed that meeting and I hope we have another <laughs> one. Um, the truth of the matter is, you know, like I think, and I've said this on Twitter before, Far too often, um, I think we allow decisions to be made by people who live in uh, uh, the urban crescent of Virginia, but we do that across the country, right? And so I'm so tired of hearing signs don't vote. And while I understand that may be, uh, th that philosophy may definitely work well in, in urban areas, but in rural areas, uh, signs mean so much. And so the first campaign that I ever worked on was in 1999. Uh, it was a county sheriff campaign, man by the name of Travis Harris. He was my dear teacher. I was 11 years old. And the short version of the story is Friday night, everyone went to the football game. There were no signs up. Saturday morning, half day, everyone starts coming into town. The county was plastered with signs. And so one of the um, one of the other candidates actually called Mr. Harris and said, hey, I knew I lost that election at that point because you all were just so organized and everyone was on your side. And I think there's a psychological impact. And honestly, that's why Republicans, are, they are so quick to put up signs and they put them up in a lot of times in places that it's not even legal. Um, and they put them up in right away on public property, but they just want everyone to realize, to think that they want the perception to be that, hey, everyone's voting Republican, you might as well vote with us. And so, you know, beyond some of the other things I'm sure we'll get into tonight, I think we have to truly have a strategy to compete everywhere. And, um, you know, I think we have to have some tough conversations. We have to look in the mirror. Uh, we have to look at the mirror of truth. And part of that is, Northern Virginia can't always save the day. And I also think that means that on some of our policies, we can't let Northern Virginia dictate some of the things that we do just because uh, we think that they can save the day. And so, for example, I had a conversation with with a donor um, and I remember asking that donor to please donate to Chairwoman Tyler, who also lost. You know, it's bad when when we lose elections, but when you lose a chair, um, that that's really really tough. And so, that woman told me that she couldn't donate to Chairwoman Tyler because of her stance on guns. And uh, my comment to that woman was, if Delegate Tyler did not have was not 
willing to tolerate guns and say gun safety and not gun control, she would never be in the House of Delegates. And so I think we have to, you know, I mean, Cherie's the expert here, but we definitely have a messaging issue. But um, I think we can't just continue to put Band-Aids on things. And just because we win, we ignore uh, the true issues that we have. I think it's interesting that you're highlighting signs, right, as a way of competing all across the Commonwealth. One of the things that I think stood out to me from the presidential on, really from pandemic on, right? So from February, March of 2020 in politics, especially in grassroots politics up until, you know, even to Tuesday is how much I believe television matters. I think television matters tremendously and it matters more when people are inside and there's not much, you know, there's not more public activity. And one of the things that I was struck by early on was how much Glenn Youngkin was on television all across the state with kind of this message that had absolutely nothing to do with policy to begin with. Early on, it was a, let me introduce you to myself, my values. I played basketball. You know, I put myself through this and I felt like he was on television so much, so early with these kind of introduction to, hey, I'm Glenn Young and I'm this, you know, this, I'm not who you think I am type thing, which for whatever it's worth, it's all strategy. I really just thought television mattered a lot. And I thought Youngkin was up. I thought Youngkin was all over the state. And I would count in regards to television ads when we're all watching those college football games on Saturdays. um, It was two to one, three to one. Um, I'm interested to see because I do think once people start to get more outside and people start to get more back to, because again, this campaign, as many people knocked on doors and I had visits and so forth, it wasn't like pre-pandemic. And the presidential was definitely not uh, an election in which people could even feel comfortable going door to door, grassrooting, knocking on door. They were basically doing it at their own risk. So I'm interested to hear takes in regards to did, did, do you all think television mattered as much as kind of, I, I think it mattered a lot, but do you all think television mattered as much or was there um, even other factors? I'll make it a two-part question since uh, I want you uh, both to run with this a little bit. Do you, did, did y'all think the election came down to identity? We, we had some talk about maybe Northern Virginia comes and saves the day, just like identity and straight demographic numbers. Or do you think it came down to issues? We heard a lot about, Um, the angst in conversation around education and the false narrative of critical race theory. So it's interesting. And I would love to get both of your takes on did television matter? Did you think it was an identity demographics race at the end of the day or an issues based race at the end of the day? So I'm going to jump in here because Glenn Youngkin, he, his first kickoff um, campaign ad was like January of this year and he introduced himself. He's like this tall, charismatic white guy. The first thing he's, he talks about is overcoming hardship. So he said his dad lost his job. And like he right then he introduces himself like as this person who's hardworking. He had to overcome obstacles. He worked really hard to get this basketball scholarship. And through faith in his family, 
he's been able to build up from there to be able to have this successful business. And so for this man who is a multi-millionaire, who is extremely wealthy, he was able to come down to just the everyday person's level and be like, I've struggled too. And, and, and I want to cut you off, but this is so important. This is such an important introduction because everything you just described, no matter how rich he is, which is extremely wealthy, was also an introduction that was so anti-Donald Trump. Yes. So anti-Donald Trump that later in life, when you're trying to say this guy is just like Trump, he supports Trump, he's been telling you his narrative and his story. And it's so far removed from Donald Trump's narrative. I just I just thought that was so important. Keep going, Cherie. But it's so critical that his introduction was that, you know, that pinpoint. Yeah, I mean, and here's the thing, like as he's campaigning during the Republican primary, none of us know what his policy proposals are, but it didn't matter because he had a story and he became relatable. So if people were paying attention to this timeline around February and March, he starts talking about forced unionizations. He kept making the comparison to Chicago teachers unions and what may actually happen here in Virginia. And he he really tapped into education at that point. It was like the anti-mask mandates. He was talking about, you shouldn't force parents to make decisions within schools. People weren't paying attention though, right? At this moment, he's testing out messaging because we talk about critical race theory. Critical race theory didn't happen until like July, really like probably end of June, July, that's when it really started to come to school boards. So this man had from basically January all the way through the Republican primary in which a lot of Democrats laughed because they couldn't get it together because they didn't know exactly what the primary process was going to be like, right? But they had ranked choice voting and everyone was so worried about Amanda Chase and what was going to happen there. But then here comes Glenn Youngkin and he rises to the top. And to your point, yes, he was on television a lot. He was in commercials. He was on YouTube ads. He was on all of the streaming platforms. But he's just like, I'm a hardworking guy. And we should not have politicians. It's time for change. And so he's making the association right there that whatever is happening nationally and whatever has happened in Virginia under Northam is not working and they ne there needs to be someone new within the governorship. So like, yes, television played a, a role in this, but not so much because of like the issues that were at play because I, to this day, cannot tell you what this man's policy platforms are, nor can I tell you what McCullough policy platform like was i mean except for him just being anti-trump or record i think a lot of people point out that's a bit that was a big uh that was a big post-election conversation was why what why are we voting for terry mcculloch because he didn't campaign on anything besides youngkin being trump and there wasn't yeah. he's got a four-year record a lot of people say it's it's a it's a positive record that we didn't hear much about we didn't hear much about that. And so I know the focus when you say television, I want to make the distinction here between national news and what's happening in Virginia. Terry was using a lot of democratic national talking points, a lot of things that you hear on cable television. Yunkin, on the other hand, he focused on Virginia. And when you talk to Yunkin reporter, Yunkin supporters, they said, I like that he talked about kitchen table issues. They were like, I care about what how much teachers are getting paid. They didn't know anything about it. They were spouting nonsense, but they could tell me 
education. I care about my kids. I care about safety. Um, I care about jobs and all of like listening to these people. I'm kind of just like, none of this really makes sense, but they believed in him. And so if you just keep seeing this tall, charismatic white guy with his dog in the red vest, and he's talking about church and his business, people start to, to buy in that into that because he's non-threatening. He's the farthest away from Trump in their eyes, right? And he's talking about issues that are important to everyday Virginians. And so, yeah, I think he was very effective in that. And he was everywhere. Not only was he on TV, he had a lot of campaign events. He had a lot of rallies, um, you know, reading the post-election coverage, seeing that they had translated materials into 12 languages. They were doing the work on the ground. And I would like for Democrats to stop assuming that the GOP, they're like unorganized because they are organized. And they show up to city council meetings and board of supervisor meetings and school board meetings. And they're really effective at workshopping messaging and testing it out on local levels and then using elections to actually test this out. So now by next year, they're going to have a playbook for the mid for the midterms. Keen, I want you to get in here and I want you to piggyback off of that issues versus kind of identity demographic type question. The other the other question I want to kind of propose to you as well in regards to just again, we're all playing Monday morning quarterback here. So in regards to the actual McAuliffe campaign, I was told that one of the criticisms that I didn't really hear prior to Tuesday, because I think I wouldn't have heard it if it worked right. We hear a lot of things on Wednesday that had Tuesday gone well, we wouldn't hear. But on Wednesday through today, which is Monday, most of you will hear this on Tuesday, I did hear a lot of the McCullough campaign and and Terry himself made the campaign about him and not about the people. So uh, I want you to piggyback off that idea of was the campaign about just McCullough and not necessarily about the issues and people. And then also, how did you feel about that, that, that balance between issues or just kind of identity in regards to the outcome of Tuesday? Yeah, so uh, to start off, like your question about TV, um, Youngkin was on TV super early, right? I remember watching March Madness and he was on TV. Um, I don't think TV played a huge role in this race. Like when you look at where Youngkin really kind of ran up the numbers, I think it was, I think there are a lot of factors here, but first of all, you know, Biden is uh, below 50% approval rating in Virginia. Um, I think that's one thing. Two, I think we have to be, um, to Cherie's point, we have to be very, very clear. Youngkin is one of the first Republicans to embrace early voting. So, Mm. um, Voting by mail in Prince Edward County, Democrats won. Voting in person early in Prince Edward County, Yunkin won. Um, and it was it was pretty close, but I think a lot of um, talking heads on TV said early on, it's like, oh, these early vote numbers are in favor of Democrats. And because we've just assumed that if someone votes early because of how Trump misplayed that last year. And that was one of the things that, uh, I, you know, to the Yunkin campaign's credit, 
like they really embraced it and they made it their own. Um, the second thing is, uh, I guess the third, what was your other qu- part of the question? So the, the yeah, I said some postmortem I heard was that Terry made the, the campaign about himself and, and not the people. And then there was some questions about just how much issues played. Was it because a lot of folks like uh, Sharia alluded to kind of thought Northern Virginia and just the sheer demographics of the last eight years probably pulls us over the top if it's close enough. However, um, you know, some some stuff we're seeing now and exiting says that issues in particular education um, seem to really connect. Yeah, uh, you know, I had a professor in college, Dr. Gerald Unks, who always said that education was America's secular religion. And um, education has always been a hot button issue. And the truth of the matter is, I think that uh, families saw some things last year, um, like when they were in the classroom, in their living room, that they didn't really approve of. And um, Youngkin really, really tapped into it. And in some ways, um, another factor, which I also said this on Twitter, I think we made the right decision from a public health standpoint with masking uh, opening slower than than other states like Florida and Texas. But from a political perspective, I think that definitely hurt us. And so if you're talking about places like rural Virginia, they couldn't be virtual all year because they don't have broadband access, right? And so they went back to school earlier. Um, They were figuring it out on their own. For better or for worse, they were in schools without masks. Some were in schools every other day, every other week. Some were in school every single day, but they were figuring it out. And then here we are, you know, school had already opened for the 2021 academic year, 21, 22 academic year. And then the state offered some guidance and mask mandates. And so they were saying, wait a minute, like we've already been doing this. Some of them open last year, um, have been open a year, and then the government comes in. And so it fed into this notion of government's too big. They're trying to tell us what to do. So I think it was a perfect storm in that way. Um, I, I've been following these campaigns for a long time. I didn't see that uh, McAuliffe was, was selfish or tried to make this campaign about him. Um, that's not what I saw from my perspective. Good point. Good point. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the cheats movement podcast. We are talking post Virginia election. I am joined by Sheree Shannon and Takeen Cooper, two of my favorite activists in the community, two of my favorite messengers, if you will. I follow them both and I'm excited to have them on the program. Are we ready to take the gloves off? We've been very polite. Look, we've been very polite and very friendly up until this point. Are we ready to take the gloves gloves off in the sense of, I think I've heard both of you and myself included um, leading up to this election, especially a week, week out um, before Tuesday, have some Twitter notion that said, if this doesn't go the way we expect it to go, The first thing I don't want you to hear is blaming the black vote, blaming minorities, blaming black women, blaming. This is what I don't want to hear. 
And what did we hear <laughs> after after Tuesday was the, the the black vote was depressed. Black people stayed home. They weren't motivated to vote for this candidate. And I have so many emotions surrounding how black constituents, black voters, black organizers are being relied upon, if you will, to save the Democratic Party, especially in Virginia and beyond. But as soon as something doesn't go the way that it's planned, it's because black people didn't vote enough. couple stats really quick, and I'll turn it over to both of y'all. Let's keen, I'll let you go first this time. More people voted in this little Virginia election than ever before. So I understand if people are saying people weren't motivated or people didn't come out, but that's factually inaccurate. More people voted in this election than any previous election before. Um, the notion... Some localities have presidential turnout. Right, right. No, absolutely. The notion that when more people vote, Democrats win, seems to have held true up until Tuesday. More people voted, Democrats got swept out of office. Um, the narrative that I never hear, and I was quick to bring it up on Twitter, but I can't remember whose exit poll it was, but there was an exit poll that said 50% of white women voted for Biden in the presidential. Uh, white women breakdown was about 50%. 57 to 60% of white women in Virginia exit poll now. I don't know how factually accurate the exit polls are, but turned out for Yunkin. I have yet to hear the article that says, what's up with white women? What's up, why are white women um, that are 36% of the population of Virginia, all the black people are only 20%, or 20% of Virginia's po black, is population is black. 36% are white women. I never hear that article. I never hear that narrative. I never hear strategies specifically geared to white women outside of education because that's that is the suburban issue is, is education. So I want to see I want to really hear it doesn't mean when I say it's a suburban issue it doesn't mean that it's not uh, issues for other populations because everybody cares about education. But, you know, um, I want to hear and I like I said, I'll let King go first. When you hear narratives like. Black people were upset, they didn't come out and vote. This is why Democrats lose. What's your reaction to those types of most of those stories are national stories, but what are what is your reaction to those types of kind of post election Monday morning quarterback? Yeah, uh, you know, I think talking heads are going to talk. Right. But the truth of the matter is, um, and I've consistently said this and I said this after 2016 from where I sit, um, calling people a basket full of deplorables or classifying all Trump voters or Yunkin voters as racist or xenophobic or homophobic is just wrong. Um, and I've tried to consistently try to learn why those people voted that way and then how we can earn their votes. You know, around the whole black turnout thing, um, the McAuliffe campaign hit all of their goals with black turnout. That's the truth of the matter. They hit their goals. They exceeded their oh, goals. Hold on. Cherie's giving me a look here. I, I want I I to see. I don't want to cut anybody off, but Cherie, is that, is that, is that a surprising statistic it, or is that? 
it's very surprising to me. But go ahead, Taquin. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> okay, we'll circle back right around. Here. But I will, and and I've I've seen some of the uh, comments before. We still didn't do we we didn't get it all right. And like, well, first I'll say that I was not part of the the McAuliffe team. Um, I'm a Democratic chair until December 31st. Um, but I still think there were some things that, that we have, that we did once upon a time that we didn't do this time, um, or that we've done historically that we should have probably continued to do. But, um, the notion that we didn't win this election because of black people, like, I, I think that's just false. And if we look at the localities, like if we look at the places where, where McAuliffe won, um, like Richmond, Petersburg, Norfolk, uh, Newport News, Portsmouth. Um, those are the black localities. So Richmond is no longer a black city, but those localities are ma majority minority. Um, and so that's not where we lost this election. And so, uh, you know, I personally don't spend a lot of time on like on, on like trying to justify that to other people. Come on, Cherie. Come on. I, Take the clothes off, Cherie. I have to clear my... I have to clear my... <laughs> so, uh, ask everybody who thinks that it was on Black voters, because it was not on us. We voted. We always vote. So, that's that on that. So, okay. For folks who are like, how do we get to the Karens of the suburbs? Like, how do we get to the white women? I, first, I want to say this. Black and brown people also lived in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And if you were paying attention to the census data, you notice that outside of our urban centers, because of gentrification and displacement, it's becoming more melanated. So pay attention to changing racial demographics there. Loudoun County came up quite often towards the end of this campaign cycle. Well, guess what? Loudoun County is now the most, has grown in racial diversity in the last 10 years. 54% of Loudoun County is white. The other part of that is not white. It's melanated people. It's black and brown folks. They're immigrant families. So pay attention to who's actually living in the suburbs. Suburbs cannot be um, the... A, a moniker for white families. I live in North Chesterfield. I'm black. Mm -hmm. I live out here. I'm a voter. I pay attention. So like, what about me? And I also want to say this for a black voter outreach, all of us ain't going to church on Sundays. So there has to be a greater effort in making sure that we can reach black folks without just saying, I'm just going to somebody's church on Sunday morning, mm -hmm. because if that's your only strategy, you're not going to get to everybody. Now, there was a market shift from the Democratic primary where you had the majority of the Black caucus out here stomping for Terry McAuliffe, right? When he's, and I really think be from May to June when Glenn Youngkin became the nominee, folks were like, oh, well, who's electable? Now, granted, there's a lot of things that happened with both Jennifer Carol Foy and McClellan's campaigns that we can dissect on another day. But I do believe that folks in their minds say we have this rich, wealthy white guy. Who can we put up there? We really all need to start backing McAuliffe at this point. And it wasn't just the party, it's voters as well. So we have to change the mentality of what is electable and who is electable as well. 
So you see the shift from McAuliffe being the nominee and all of these Black folks are backing him. They're on all the commercials. You got, I'm not going to say <laughs> No, no, go you ahead. Know. No, no, because look, this is important. And I'll tell you why this is important. There were Black elected officials in the Legislative Black Caucus that had came out for one of the gins or other candidates that literally changed their vote for McAuliffe. And I think you're hitting on a point that they did that based off of who they thought was electable. Or who they thought was electable as well as proximity to power as absolutely. well as absolutely absolutely yeah elected. you can't we can't we gotta talk yes. about it talk about it yes so then he so McCullough becomes a nominee no phone calls are had with like the black organizers the folks who actually were on the ground supporting Jennifer Carroll Foy or McClellan and I'm one of those people that usually gets a phone call somebody says hey Sheree we got to come to this meeting. Such as I just having a call. They're trying to get everybody together. Oh, I love those meetings. It's, it's June. It's July. And then I have people in Northern Virginia reaching out to me, people in Fairfax and Prince William County. And they're like, hey, did you get a phone call? These are people who are actually members of the National Democratic Committee. Mm -hmm. I got folks in Danville who are like, have you heard anything? People in the Hampton Roads area, they're like, I don't, what, what is going on right now? And all of these Black electeds who were stomping for Terry during the primary, they weren't on my television screen anymore. Mm -hmm. They weren't on radio ads anymore. I did not see them giving interviews in national press as well as state press. So that said to me, oh, you think you got the Black vote on lock. You don't have to work for this vote. My dad is a preacher. He's a pastor of a church in Petersburg. He told me the number of times, like a, like a dozen times, people reached out to him during the Democratic nomination process. Nobody reached out to him during mm -hmm. his general election. Nobody was coming to Petersburg and all these other churches. They were like, what's going on? We have voters down here too. So there was a, there's a lot to unpack there when it comes For to sure. Black black behavior as well as black organizing power well, that's go ahead, this go is ahead. really important because i got a good question about this because and i also feel like because and it's rightfully so if mcauliffe and the mcauliffe campaign are at the top of the ticket this is a lot of where we focus on however both uh the lieutenant governor candidate and a two-time attorney general mark herring a very known uh commodity who Full disclosure, I think all three of us can can figure out that we're all three Democrats. We all, have, all three have worked in, in, in politics for a long time now, grassroots organizing. If you'd ask me what the biggest shock was, the biggest shock, I think, for me personally, was the lieutenant governor's race, because I didn't think there was no way that Winsome Sears wins. Um, but the second biggest shock was Mark Herring. I thought Mark Herring would actually might have way more support than the top of the ticket. So... When you're saying all of when you're saying what you're saying, which is, I think, critical, Sheree, and very important, does it apply all the way down? It has to apply all the way down. Right. And if so, are we looking at the coordinated campaign? I remember. I mean, I haven't worked on a political campaign in a long time, but when I did, it was a governor's race. Uh, I've worked on a governor's race and I remember there was the party. There was the top of the ticket. There was a coordinated campaign, all of this stuff. And if you were talking about going back to Obama days, there was even, you know, nonprofit, different organizations that we were like, where are they coming from? And I say all that just to, to ask, was it all the way across the board that we've, you know, it, 
clearly the results might show it, but was it all the way across the board that we had this failure of communication, especially in grassroots communities, uh, black and brown communities? Like, where was this? This isn't a secret. Where was this outreach? So from what I've heard, because I did not work directly with the coordinated campaign. Well, full disclosure, um, none of us did, right? So full yeah, disclosure right? with that. So yeah. like, I, I usually get those phone calls and that just did not happen during this race. So I was working with a political organization. So I was kind of in proximity there. Um, and from what I heard, the coordinated campaign was a bit chaotic mm-hmm. um, and disorganized. And there was, there was a lot of needs um, that were not met for local democratic committees. So a lot of folks are raising their hands and say, I need signs. I need literature. Um, what should we be saying out here? Are you going to come to my community? And that didn't happen. And I think that we're one of the biggest failures um, for kind of this, I, I don't want to just say DPVA because like I can't assign responsibility when I was not directly a part of sure. that. Sure, no, I completely understand, yep. But what, I, what I've been hearing and what I have observed was that there just was not a cohesive coordination from not only the governor's race, but also Lieutenant Governor and for Mark Herring, um, and then down ballot races. And a mm-hmm. lot of candidates who ran for House of Delegates have shared with me that they were left high and dry, especially mm-hmm. in rural areas. So to Tykeen's point, we can't ignore these rural voters. There are, there are a lot of great people on the ground who are knocking doors, who are phone banking, who are hosting events, who are doing everything they can with honestly, most time, most often very little resources. Um, but when they were asking for materials, they were trying to get that support, it didn't happen. And I think the messaging at the top of the ticket was very fractured and splinter for what people were talking about um, in down ballot races. Like there were delegates who were, they were talking about schools. They were talking about trying to fix potholes and school construction, um, healthcare, Medicaid access, all of those kitchen table everyday issues. But it's just like, if you have the head doing one thing and the body doing something else, you know, it really just causes a lot of confusion there. Let me take one quick second to do a little bit of what I call housekeeping type cleanup, because we are talking post-election. We are talking a week after Republicans swept the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, uh, Republicans won the House. I say that to say, I think all three of us know that one of the hardest things to do in life is run for public office. I have never run for public office. I have never I've worked on a campaign. I have never been a candidate. I have never had to make those. I've never I've never been a campaign manager. So I've never had to make those decisions. The people that do um, are some of the most dedicated, hardworking people that I've ever met. The volunteers that knock on doors, the the folks like this is. I do not want to diminish the work that people did do, and I do not want to devalue it because I do know how important it is. And I know there's a feeling, especially what the Virginia Democratic Party, that uh, that people are just constantly beating up on them. Uh, I do think this is a time for reflection, soul searching and figuring out how to do things differently. But it is not um, any position of this podcast to criticize people that have made that ultimate decision to run for public office in that sense. Uh, And it's not any of my position to for those people making those tough decisions, making those strategies and having them play out. Um, 
kind of like like everything else. I love I love sports metaphors. Uh, there's going to be a winner and loser at every kind of every contest, and the losers are going to be doing what we're doing um, in regards to discussing it. So I, I know there's a lonely time for a lot of those folks, and I and I, and I know sometimes it's hard to get the sunlight in, but um, I, I did want to say that, and I want to switch over to to Keen because I I do want to ask um, a really what I think is a is a important question. And I want you know everybody can weigh in, but of course we're going to get to the question of had it been Jennifer Carroll Foy, had it been Jen McCullen, would that have energized folks in a way that would have had them win the election? Uh, I've heard a lot of folks that say, you know, again Monday morning quarterbacking. Well, if Terry McCullough had gotten out of the way, he had the job before. Virginia was ready. Uh, to kind of break a glass ceiling, if you will, with a black woman, would the result, do you think the result would have been different had it been one of the two Jennifers? And that might not be a fair question. So what was your think, what do you think if had it been not Terry McAuliffe and one of the two, um, how, how the election would have been different? Let me ask that way. How would the election have been different? Not if the result would have been different. No, uh, I, I think it's difficult to have these like what if sure, questions. Sure, absolutely. Right now. It's, I, I was trying to make um, it a fair question. It might not it, be a it, fair question. I acknowledge that it's probably not. A fair and and you know it's considering that uh, the margin of a victory in the primary. Like I think it's hard to to say that Democrats weren't excited about Terry McAuliffe. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, between June and November, we didn't get the job done. But I think it's hard to say that Democrats weren't excited about Terry McAuliffe. And eh, that's easier no... for some. <laughs> I, met, I met a whole bunch of people that said that. So I'm just saying easier for some. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I, you, and I, I've said this before. Um, I think sometimes we overvalue some of the things that we get in our, in our mentions on social media. Sure. Um, because on, from my social media and the things that people are saying to me, like Terry McAuliffe wouldn't have gotten 5% um, in the primary. And so like, if, if I just listen to those people, I'm like, okay, sure. Um, like this, this wouldn't happen, but you know, I think it's hard to argue against the fact that he won every municipality in the Commonwealth in June. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the election didn't end in June. We didn't get it done in November. So I, I think we definitely have to learn from it. But I don't think it's even fair to those women to, to try to compare them um, in this election. Cherie, it's not fair, but I'm going to ask you the same question. <laughs> How, how, how do you think the election would have been, would have played out differently had it been uh, one of the two Jennifers or, uh, you know, that, that came out of that primary? I think we would have seen some parallels to uh, Stacey Abrams campaign in, in Georgia. I think there would have been more national attention. Um, We saw how much national attention the, the race got in for the Democratic primary, even though Terry was always named as the front runner in the press and talking about the press, that's a whole nother issue. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think we would have seen more energy and excitement. I can't say that who would have won the race, but I do know that my mama and my aunties and the usher board and Miss Green, who makes my lemon chest pie, would have been out there stomping for one of the Jennifers. Um, and but we didn't. I, the folks just in my circle, the ones the who are the base of the party, they weren't out there stomping for Terry during this campaign. Mm. Um, and so I do wonder what that level of energy and excitement would have looked like if we had a black woman at the top of the ticket. Now, granted, I don't want to dismiss Princess Blanding either because Princess also ran for governor. And I think Mm -hmm. she ran a very strong race in which she got, I think, what, 23,000 votes. Um, And she did it with such little resources. Like she was out hustling and earning the vote for a lot of Virginians. So I want to say kudos to her as well. But for the Democratic side, I, I do believe we would have seen at least more energy. I'll put it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only from across the state, but also nationally as well in trying to uh, sway the election outcomes. I think you bring it up. I think you bring up an amazing point when you talk about the, the Blaming for Governor campaign. Um, definitely not to be overlooked in regards to her entry into the race, what it stood for, what it represented for a lot of folks. And I think that it's important that we acknowledge the blaming for governor campaign in regards to what the messaging it brought out and some of the issues that she talked about. Um, when I was able to see, I, I wasn't able to see her stop much. Um, but when I was able to, to, to follow some of the things that were done, um, I think she raised issues that weren't being raised in the entire dialogue of this particular campaign. With that said, Moving forward, Takeen, you had actually laid out a good point in regards to competing all across Virginia and not writing off certain localities. I want to ask the question in the time that we have left, and, I, and I've got this bullet, this kind of statewide gubernatorial lieutenant governor, attorney general question in the House as well. Um, then I want to switch, and I do want to ask for our more local contingencies about the, the one casino vote, get a quick uh, quick opinion on that. But where do we go from here in regards to what are some of the things that both of you would like to see happen in the next year, next two years? Um, one interesting thing about the House of Delegates is they're up every two years, right? And I think the state Senate, there's more seats up, right, in two years on the state Senate than there were in this previous election. Um, so I'm very interested to see on a state level, what, what should happen now? Where does the, the soul searching reflection, what's a good outcome? Where does it lead to? I'll let you go, Takeem. <laughs> Not everybody at once. Oh, of course you will, Cherie. Um, you know, I mean, I think part of it is we're having these conversations and we're having them publicly and privately. You know, I think that's a, a step in the right direction. One of the things someone um, tweeted me last week was like, how do we truly compete with the conservative radio stations and conservative newspapers in rural Virginia? Like, how do we start getting our own message out? And I think uh, this podcast is a 
great example of that. But I think we have to like we have to truly not sure uh, this podcast start. is a bastion for role voters. But I, I mean, I, I think this, I, I think this is an example. I think this is an example. You got some rural folks up here tonight. Sure, absolutely, I, I absolutely. Um, well, good. Welcome, but, you know, welcome think, to the family. I think the other thing that we have to do is um, we have to consistently reach out to people, and not only when we're asking them for a vote. And I think we have uh, we've been conditioned to do so in Virginia. Part of it is because we have an election every single year, which is a form of voter suppression in itself. But that's a conversation for another day. Um, but how do we start reaching out to people and like having these voter contacts outside of October and November and say, hey, we want you to come vote for this person. And, um, you know, I think we have to really build an infrastructure and earn the trust of people in communities across Virginia. And if that means building a bench training other candidates like i think we have to try everything because what we're currently doing isn't working like in some of those places in southwest we lost 85 uh to 15 last week and you know we can't afford to do that anywhere and so we have to cut down some of those margins we have to run up the score in in areas that are more democratic but i think we have to truly start talking about the kitchen table issues and how it affects how it affects Virginians. I agree with you there, Tykeen. Um, I think that there needs to be a revival, but in order for us to get a revival, there has to be some repentance first. There has to be an acknowledgement um, that, that folks have not been listening to organizers and voters on the ground. I think there needs to be a level of accountability so the first thing I would like to see for any long-term strategy is acknowledging the existing barriers and gaps that exist within the current infrastructure of the Democratic Party of Virginia. Um, the next thing I would like to, to see happen is, you know, does there need to be a conversation about restructuring leadership? Is the current leadership working right now? If it's not, then you might have to clean house. And then for individuals such as myself, like I'm not a member of a local democratic committee, but I'm applying now because it's really not enough for me on the outside to complain and say like, what are Democrats doing if I'm not on the inside to help make that change as well? Mm -hmm. So how can we get more folks like myself and folks who are invested in the process to be part of their local democratic committee so we can really have true boots on the ground? and recognizing that it's not just centered around elections, we also have legislative sessions as well. As well. So to move on these policies, we have to educate the public. What are we talking about here? A lot of the public unfortunately did not get to hear about the gains that Democrats in Virginia have made, even just this year. We've, had, we've passed historic legislation but that was not on the campaign trail and that was the time to do it. So one, I would like to hear more effective messaging and not only effective messaging, but consistent and central centralized messaging. I've been saying this for, for years. I remember calling into Washington Journal like two, three years ago. Yeah. And I was asking, I was like, what are the top three to five policy priorities for Democrats during that midterm cycle? There was none. Mm. And then 2019 and then 2020 and 2021, Democrats have to find a clear identity of who they are, 
they have to get people excited about being a Democrat in order for us to get to a place where we really can be unified um, across the board within the party. So I would like to see some type of repentance, a restoration and a revival for, for DPVA. I want to be excited. I don't want to go to the ballot and just, I don't want to go to the polls and be like, ugh, this is the lesser of two evils. Like mm-hmm. I want to be excited about my candidate. I want to be like, this person has my back. They have amazing ideas. They listen to me throughout the entire year. And so what does that engagement look like? Not only in urban areas, but suburban areas, exurban, as well as in rural places. Um, and the press, to Taikin's point, the press will play a role in that. And so I think that to the news media, to any reporters who may be listening to this as well, state politics is not just following elected officials. Mm. It's not just following folks during the legislative session. State politics is education. It's healthcare. It's climate change. It's energy. It's transportation. It's housing. These are all political issues that come up day in, day out for everyday Virginians. And I would like for the press, whenever possible, I'm trying not to attack y'all, but whenever possible, please talk to more people. I do not want to keep hearing about white women living in the suburbs. I want folks who look like me. I want to hear from folks who share my experiences. I want to hear from immigrant families. I want to hear about folks who are queer, who have disabilities. Like, why is it that we keep hearing from the same folks over and over and over again? So they too play a role in in public discourse and how we're able to move forward. And Democrats need to hire better consultants in order to be most more effective in those areas who are not hearing the message that they need to actually get out. Well, so, so, so oh, to ahead, that Tukin, point, ahead, uh, one thing uh, Cherie mentioned, joining a Democratic committee. So every Democratic committee in the Commonwealth of Virginia, including uh, the state central committee will be reorganized in, in Q1. Um, so it's definitely an opportunity for you to get involved uh, to come in, we're going to be voting on leadership from every local committee all the way up. Uh, please come be part of this process. The other thing that Shuri mentioned that I have to to note, and it's a shameless plug for both of you, uh, is hiring better consultants. If you're looking for consultants or people that can tell you what is going on and how they can help you, there's two people on this podcast, not name cheats, that at least you should be having a conversation with because they know their stuff. They know what's happening on the ground and they're connecting to real people. So if you're ever looking, you know, out there in the world to hire some consultants, look no further. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the cheats movement podcast. I am so excited to be having this. I think a very meaningful conversation in regards to uh, post-election com commentary wrap up however you want to say it i know people are looking to kind of figure out what happened and move forward we are all the three of us are all kind of in that central virginia region one of the things that was a central part because actually it's funny sharice said she's in north chesterfield Takeed, you're in prince edward i'm in henrico so none of us were able to vote on the one casino <laughs> uh referendum but it It took up a lot of oxygen, I know, within the city. 
Um, I don't even know what the numbers were in regards to the millions of dollars that came in for advocacy for it. I know that there was a lot of advocacy uh, from grassroots organizers against the one casino. Um, I will tell you this. There are more better, bitter, bitter feelings that I saw on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday post-election about the casino vote than I did hear about the top of the ticket, the, the, the sweep in the house. I heard personal attacks. I'm talking about very, very personal attacks one way or the other about people advocating for and against the one casino. So I know it was a hot button issue that all of you are aware of. Same question that I led this podcast off with in regards to talking to the election. Were you surprised about the one casino vote? And why do you think it went the way it went, which is the public voted against it? There will not at this point. It doesn't look like it's coming back. Casino talk in Richmond, as it is, is off the table for now. I was not surprised um, because I like I know the political voting power of Richmonders, particularly in North Side and wealthier white neighborhoods. Um, what I do think is unfortunate, though, is for the people who primarily voted for the casino. Um, we're looking at mainly Southside, Eighth and Ninth District. Yes, Black Latino neighborhoods. Um, I I understand that argument that people have that said like the voices of wealthy more wealthier white affluent voters like overshadowed um, black voters and yes that is true but I also see like we just did not have as high a turnout within those districts which is unfortunately often the case um and then secondly really it's just a the casino is a referendum on the lack of dis like the disinvestment in South Richmond in general. So right. no, like, your Twitter, your Twitter account for anyone that's that's following said so many things about I, you know, um not conflicted, but you saw signs for invest in Southside one casino. And I think it was things to the extent of you saying, I wish the sign would just say invest in Southside. Invest hey, in period. Southside. Why why not? Give us, give us a grocery store. Give us multiple grocery stores. People need jobs. They need. We need better infrastructure. We need safe and affordable housing. I mean, there's a lot of issues there in South Richmond um, that a casino was never going to solve because they're systemic issues. And so I think that the vote. I mean, really, it not only was a referendum to like see if they wanted a casino, it was a referendum on Southside and what the city actually wanted to do to invest in those neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, I try to think of it beyond who voted it down, but more so like why people were voting for it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Takeen, get in here. Same question. Were you surprised by the result? Uh, and why do you think it got? So I was a little bit surprised by this result. I thought that it would pass. I thought it would be really, really close, but I did think it would pass. Um, but I think where it went wrong, um, 
I feel like last week across the country, last Tuesday, people rejected the notion of equity. And so the casino was rolled out under um, this platform of equity. Like this was an equitable investment. You had uh, black managers and ownership. And I think across the country, people rejected equity. So I think if the, the partnership on the front end was quote unquote more inclusive, um, I think it would have passed in the, in the city. So I'm trying to follow you. I just want to make sure I'm getting this right though. Are you saying that the casino was too black? Yes. Okay. Okay. That doesn't mean that's, that's, that's what I'm, what I was, I felt like I was hearing, but I wanted to like, cause it's a, there was, it was marketed as black owned for black people, black jobs. And there was a lot of blackness wrapped around the marketing hey, campaign of that casino. When I saw on the news that Al Sharpton was here, I was like, oh man, like the casino could be in trouble because I know that the reaction from other voters is like, if he's involved, absolutely not. Um, so mm. the, the notion of this was equitable, um, I think people just kind of rejected that at the ballot box across the country last week. And so that's the same thing in Virginia, right? I mean, like the Commonwealth, we talked about education and, you know, some of the resistance in Fairfax and Loudoun counties because they've made their uh, admissions process to some of those specialty schools more equitable and people like, wait, this is unfair. Like, so some of the well-intentioned folk who have consistently said that like, I'm a bastion for equity when they actually see it in practice, they reject it. And I think that was one of the things we saw with the casino referendum, not to minimize other people who have concerns with it. Right. Because again, the, the, a lot of the leading advocates were grassroots activists that were black, that were black and brown. Not, not to, like I said, not to minimize that, but I know, uh, I know some people who um, were involved in that anti movement who uh, definitely participate in, in casinos and gambling in other places around the country. <laughs> Again, and that's interesting because I was probably, so we went into the one casino episode uh, before the election and me and my, uh, my partner, Gigi Broadway, she was probably a little bit more leaning anti. We said it before we bought the panelists on and I was probably leaning a little bit more like, you know, look, I don't want to be in a position to say, and I don't like it, but I'm still going to go. Like if they get like, I'm a hip hop head. I'm a, like, I'm an inter- I like entertainment. I like, I like my sports books. I like a lot of things. So it was one of those things where it was like, <laughs> I, I was, I, I kept it hundred percent. As soon as the discussion was over, I was like, look, if they pull some of the concert, if they bought something to the, something to the water, the Pharrell concert to the one casino, you going to tell me I'm not going. So I, I, I say all Something that the water does not have a home right now. either. Right. I was saying this to say, do I think casinos in general are a net positive on society? No, but are there a lot of things that are, that we do and engage in? I drink a beer from time to time. Is it an, is alcohol a net positive on society? Probably not. So it's like, I was, I will tell you, and this is interesting because I think this gets to a point of a lot of us. I was actually one, I was completely shocked that it didn't pass. That was the biggest shock for me of the night. I thought the casino referendum was 
in the bag. And I didn't think it was the way, even across the board, the way that it turned out, I was surprised. Um, I was also extremely surprised and felt a little like I felt the type of way when I looked at the map, you know, the next day or the day after, and I saw who voted for it and who voted against it. And I understood all like either way it went, I would have understood it, but I'm, I'm still wrestling with looking at that map and being like, wait a second. Is, is this real? Cause I didn't think it would go that way. So I was like, what is it about those districts and the makeup of those districts and those people uh, that voted against it? Were all of them listening to my homie, Alan Charles Chipman and the, and the grassroots advocates against it? Cause I don't think a whole lot of people in the first, in the second, I could be wrong. Maybe those, those messages fly way stronger than I thought, but I'm looking at this and being like, I don't know if they heard, you know, Allen and Paul Goldman and all those folks. I know they voted it down. And I know that it was marketed, like Takeen and I were talking about, as something that would uplift Southside, uplift black and brown people. And I'm looking at this map, and I still, to this day, I haven't, I haven't come to terms with it. I'm still wrestling with trying to figure out why that map looked the way it did. Well, I would pivot there. So this is sorry, a little PR of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on, come with it. I don't I don't want to focus on why people voted it down. I want to focus on why people voted for it in the first place. I mean, like I think they felt this was like I felt again the the argument is eighth and ninth district has been underappreciated for this long. We ain't got we haven't had any opportunities. This is a black owned opportunity and y'all are gonna kill it. And when I say y'all, I mean mean, white. and no, I mean, I did not support the casino, was not super vocal about it because I don't live in the city of Richmond limit. So I just had to stay in my lane on that mm-hmm. front. No, no, I understand. Um, you know, but I do just want to come back to instead of focusing on why folks voted it down, which I'm kind of happy about personally, mm-hmm. um, what is going to happen next for those districts that are underserved and under-resourced? Because... This is going to just continue to happen over and over again. And it's just like, what type of investment is the city going to make? And actually, to be more specific, what type of investment is the mayor's administration going to make within those districts? So last year during the campaign, there was an announcement, all kinds of announcements, right? Because Alexis had entered the race. And so it's like, we're going to have a new office of equitable transportation. We're going to oh, focus on of housing. There flooded the system, drive- flooded the system with announcements. I, yeah, I, I actually wrote articles about that. Yeah, I mean, like there are five new parks in the South Side. Well, look, I'm one of the co-founders of South Side Relief. And I'm so excited to be working with Parks and Rec on bringing these new parks online. But none of these are fully funded. So Mm -hmm. here again, I mean, it's kind of like folks were asking for a casino because there has just been decades of disinvestment. And I think about all the money that was spent on advertising and marketing to lobby for that campaign. And I'm just like, y'all really could have just gave us money. You could have just helped fund projects on the ground. Like you could have used your advocacy for more long-term and sustainable solutions. So like, I'm not anti-development. I'm just like, can the city actually 
Stop just leaping at every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes in and it's just like, yes, we need this. And they run through all these talking points. Come up with a clear vision for what equitable development is supposed to look like within the city that's actually going to generate revenue and community benefits for people and go to the General Assembly when called upon to actually get our fair share of funding. Like that doesn't happen. And we're just going to keep going through the same cycle over and over and over again. And folks are going to keep begging for help. And I'm just like, something's got to change. Mm-hmm. It has to change. Let me let me ask this. And this will be uh, the last question because we are going to get um get you out of here and i really really appreciate the time my wife asked this question so shout out to my wife aria for and this might not this again this might not be the fairest question but i'll ask it this way i'll make it a little bit more fair what's one thing that you both if you have an idea that you would like to see on salsa i think one of the the um, one of the things that i hear from just concerned folks that really don't have a grasp of the situation is well you know i heard no on shaco bottom stadium which is not Southside, but i heard no on navy hill i heard no on casino there's the the question of if we have investment invested in Southside, these are some of the things give me one or two things that you would like to see in the next two or three years that is something that community members grassroots advocates economic development can get behind that we think would help the 8th and 9th District help Salsa? After you, Cherie. <laughs> anyone? Well, anyone? I brought up Salsa. I mean, there's a lot of things I would like to see for investments. For one, figure out how to fully fund all of those new parks that we're trying to bring online. Um, and that's the equivalent of about a, a few hundred acres of, of access to green spaces. Um, So one that improves health outcomes, that is going to help with recreation, it's just going to improve overall livability as well as the quality of life for for those neighborhoods. But if we're talking about wealth building, um, I would like to see uh, some type of university-based or hospital-based campus on that side of the river in which we are employing people, there's job training, there's childcare, we can generate revenue. I mean, in an ideal world, I'm like, what if Virginia Union had a satellite campus on that side of the river? I think there has to be some, some type of development project, whatever it is, um, that really is going to return more community benefits and not cause as much social harm um, such as a, like a casino would have brought to that side of the river. So me, I'm always going to say invest in green spaces. And I, unfortunately, I didn't believe that the one casino was actually going to bring 55 acres because they didn't really sound like they understood environmental resource management. Mm, mm. Um, and then two, figure out what community wealth building looks like. Build, bring some campus to that side of the river and a grocery store, of course. Give us a damn grocery store. So, sorry. Now, last, I'll give you the last word on this, Takeen. Anything that you would like to see, and it might not just be eighth and ninth, but underdeveloped uh, communities, under um, neglected, if you will, areas. What are some things that we could bring to those areas that would increase uh, the, the, the quality of life and also, you know, be a catalyst for economic uh, development 
in many ways. So I'm gonna preface this by saying it's probably gonna be very unpopular. I like but, it. Uh, I like it. Come with it. Put the new diamond over there. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. That's not a bad idea. But, Why would you but, like? I mean, but, yes, there will be people in the second district, <laughs> the second city council district, the first that will fight you. Probably it'll look like that. Look, it'll probably look a lot like that map we just saw, right? But yeah, man, I, I'm. I, I, mean, I mean, if you if you put the new diamond over there, all the restaurants like wow. they they will build around it. Um, and I think that's an opportunity to, uh, to, to reinvigorate, Stoney. to reinvigorate the South side. Um, you might so need to I get on the phone with Stony Jack. I like that idea. Uh, what would an you think athletic, that's unpopular? I mean, an athletic complex, you can have a whole, like, you can have like basketball arena. You can have like tennis courts, have AAU tournaments coming this over is, here. Build just as long as you don't tip finance it, you might have a shot. Right, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement podcast. This has been uh, just an amazing, amazing evening for me personally. I'm speaking to two people that I have tremendous amount of respect for, uh, followed their work for such a long time. I uh, will continue to follow their work and cannot wait. Look, Cherie, Shannon, and myself. We've been trying to get, it's got to be at least a year and a half, two years we've been trying to get coffee. So we'll figure this out. But I really, really appreciate you. I appreciate everything you do. I appreciate you coming on the show. Takeen, you already know. Uh, I got a Peloton because of you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, I, a, and I didn't get the referral bonus. Right, I know, man. I let you down. I even DM'd you. I was like, yo, let me let me get you that referral bonus. We'll get and you said you stopped. You're, you're, look, you're a mirror guy now. You're off the, you're off the Peloton. I'm a mirror guy now. Man. You're a mirror? For real, for yeah. real. You I look, Exactly. I, I just got, look, I got the first look, not even the swivel Peloton. I got the first Peloton, and I'm <laughs> going to be paying for it for the next two years. Um, but, no, I, I I appreciate you both. I appreciate what you what you do, what you bring to uh, this space. It is uh, imperative that we have more and more of your voices and these voices uplifted. Um, I'm going to try to do my part. Uh, the network, the family, the Chiefs Movement Podcast Network, and we're going to try to do our part. Uh, you know, Cherie's got a beautiful situation over there. I'm not trying to tamper anything. Look, but if you ever look, if you ever want to start a new show, come on over, <laughs> holla at me. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both for joining the program. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, I'm going to ask you both to close out your screens. Uh, Joshua is here, my uh, my producer extraordinaire, our producer extraordinaire on the Cheats Movement podcast. Joshua, what up? How's it going? I'm good, man. How are you? Joshua is, this is, this is a fun fact. He is our producer who has, hasn't produced an episode yet. However, <laughs> <laughs> however, it's coming. Time. We're going to figure this thing out. Uh, we're going to be back in person uh, and we're going to get everything squared away. Man, uh, you are never at a lack for words, Joshua. Tell us, did, did, what did you think of Sheree and Takeen and, and the comments that were not even what, not about them individually, but did you catch a theme overall about post-election conversation? Um, I would say that uh, they're very educated. 
you know. Not them, not them. We're talking about the theme overall. In general, the GPA, the theme you know, I don't want yeah. you to get in any trouble. You know what I'm saying? We try uh, to make yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know you like to throw flames. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what was the? Um, what, did you did you pick up anything? Did you have any takeaways from the election? Oh, my takeaway from the election is uh, people thought that Terry McAuliffe was Joe Biden, and they mm. thought that Youngkin was 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 Trump. I think you think so? Were, See, I, I I don't think that. I think he in, got more votes because they didn't think he was Trump. I, in the sense that I'm talking about dem, the Democratic Party. Oh, okay, the Democratic yeah, yeah. Party. Okay, okay. I think that Youngkin should thank whoever he prays to that that Trump was not on Twitter, because I think like oh um, interesting. I point. think that uh, Taikin, uh he mentioned earlier just listening to people on Twitter. Um, the the loud people on Twitter are still there for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But they weren't there. They weren't there because because Trump's not there anymore. And Youngkin did it, mm. even though he endorsed him and all of that, Youngkin still knew to like keep a distance. Because, mm-hmm. you know, still, like, a, opinion, like a stiff arm, a strong right. stiff arm. You know, right. it remind what you're saying reminds me, look, I'm old. You know what I'm saying? I remember Bad Boy in the 90s. <laughs> that, that old <laughs> Bad Boy in the 90s. And there was a thing that Puffy always said back in the day was bad boys move in silence. And so it was <laughs> yes, one of sir. those things for me that I always will I will always remember bad boys move in silence. So a lot of the loud talk, a lot of the loud talk doesn't really get it done, but bad boys move in silence. So right. hey look, Joshua, you're the man as always. Thank you for uh for 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 being here, man. We got we got a lot of work to do. I'm excited about the network um last just Sunday just Sunday, we went to the media center over at the ICA. Shout out to the ICA. Shout out to Yoki Ensign. Um, we're getting our ducks in a row for us to record over there. Uh, you know, whether if it's at the end of this year or going into going into next year, the Chiefs Movement podcast will be recording at the media center at the ICA. Please check that out. We had a great meeting with the good folks over at Common House. We're going to have some network shows over there that I'm really excited about. We're going to have more network shows online. We need to get 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 everything going, Joshua. But it's moving. I'm excited about what the uh, the family's gonna bring. So, I mean, I need people to sign up. I need people to get on the uh, email list. I'm excited about that. Um, just more to come, man. More to come. Gigi Broadway is gonna be here one of these days. She mi- look. I'm, I'm hurt. I'm hurt. She missed this one because I know she was gonna throw flames. Um, but we'll have to do a follow up Q and A with Gigi Broadway. Anybody, this was our very first time that we live streamed on Twitter, live streamed on Facebook, live streamed on YouTube. Please, please, please follow myself, follow the network, follow Sheree Shannon, follow Takeen Cooper on all social media platforms. I'm excited. Uh, They're great. They're great Twitter followers. They're both great Twitter followers. So make sure you do that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm wrapping it up. I am excited about the future of the Cheats Movement podcast. I'll regroup. You know, I'm a little hurt about the actual overall election, but I'll regroup. And, um, you know, I think there were some great suggestions there about joining local activism, local political committees, getting involved, doing your part. I think both of uh, both our guests echoed that. And we really got to take that to heart. So um, I think that's important as well. So. Well, can I ask if you have a solution? A solution I mean, I, for what to do? Just, just something like the last question that you asked at the end. Do you have something in mind you know, that you think would work? 
I, you know, I think there was a little bit of perfect storming in there that happened in regards to um, the actual voter turnout. I think, like I said, Biden's numbers, the fact that on the federal level, they weren't able to pass anything strategically. Um, you know, China try to Trump, you know, cast the election as a national election versus Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat versus Trump, who I think Sheree pointed out really well that Glenn Youngkin had been up taking, you know, telling his narrative for a very, for a very long time and telling who, telling people who he, he was or per, appeared to be. And um, I also think I'm petty, man. I also think there's a lot of petty things that played in that a lot of people may not feel fully comfortable discussing. Um, Youngkin's a tall guy. He's an attractive guy. Um, I don't know if Virginia as a state is as democratic as we were led to believe when you're nominating candidates like Ken Cuccinelli or Ed Gillespie. Um, I think that's, you know, we're running, I think Democrats are running against a different type of candidate that learned lessons from the Tea Party, learned lessons from what Trump did and said, and there was a lot of folks that voted that were anti those, those kind of Tea Party Trump folks that were looking to quote unquote come home. Youngkin gave them a reason to come home. And the problem that I have with that is why, like, we have to make a better case if we're going to be a big tent uh, party, like a little bit like the King said, we're going to be a big tent party. We have to message, like, like Sharice said, message to different parts of our tent and have them make sure they feel appreciated and understood. And that's a hard task. It's not an easy task. Um, but I, I think there's just a lot of that that goes in. So I think long-term solutions, I think you're going to start to see, I hope to see more engagement. I hope to see more um, real tangible takeaways for places like the South Side. You know? You know, like you gotta, you gotta give the people deliverables and then you can campaign on some of those deliverables as well right. and if you have deliverables you have to campaign on them i think mccullough had deliverables that he kind of let let go so he could say that Yonko was trump right. there's a lot i of think that i think they ran against they did they ran against themselves i mean because in, in many ways i think democrats in many ways all right we got to cut this off joshua yeah. appreciate you i appreciate our guests uh, this is Cheats Movement Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time, yeah. we see it. Yo, yo, I'm trying to play leaving. All right, see you at the end, bro.